You're listening to a Metro podcast. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. I don't like being called a lady writer. It seems like gallantry to you, but it doesn't feel right to us. We believe survivors. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. Welcome to the kind of woman power that sustained our grandmothers for 72 years in their struggle to get the right to vote. Welcome to the new wave of feminism. Welcome to each other. Welcome home. Welcome to Nth Wave, the podcast about women and the media. On the show this week, after decades of family activism and pressure from Indigenous groups and politicians, the federal government has finally launched the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. How did we get here? And what do we stand to gain? And will the inquiry be far-reaching enough? That's coming up on Nth Wave. Welcome to Nth Wave. I'm Rosemary Westwood, your host and national columnist for Metro News. Just some quick housekeeping off the top. All of our past episodes, and there are 12, on sexual assault and race, Black Lives Matter, sexism in science reporting, moral panic over girls' sex lives, the meaning of wife, and many, many more. They're all in one place on our webpage. That's www.metronews.ca forward slash features forward slash Nth dash wave so see if you can pop that into your google search or you could just google and the wave podcast and metro news and we'll pop up okay let's get to the show Indigenous women and girls in this country are murdered at a rate at least, according to RCMP figures, 4.5 times the rate of the general female population in this country. And that could well be an underestimate. In fact, the National Post um, today pegs it at 6%. The launch last week of the federal missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry is designed to do two things, reveal the root causes of violence against Indigenous women and offer solutions. Along with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it represents another possible pivotal moment in relations between the federal government and white mainstream Canada and the country's Indigenous peoples. And like most of these moments, it did not come easy. It's been decades in the making, and it was point as was pointed out by many, it's a victory for Indigenous families, activists, and organizations who've long demanded not just an acknowledgement of their suffering, but also justice. In fact, the first study to focus especially on this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women was produced by the Native Women's Association of Canada, and the president, Don Lavelle Harvard, is my guest today. Welcome to the show, Don. Well, thank you for having me today. We're going to get to the specifics of this inquiry um, and, and spend the bulk of our time there, but I want to put it into context first. How did we get here and how long have families and Indigenous groups been raising this issue? Well, I myself have been involved with the Native Women's Associations for over 40 years, and the issue of violence against our women has been at the forefront of that movement for at least those 40 years. And there have been reports, I mean, everything from the Breaking Free study that was done by the Ontario Native Women's Association back in the 1980s that really started to bring attention to that issue of the high levels of violence where they 
pointed out in some communities, it was 75% of the women had been victims of violence. Many people see this conversation as having started quite recently, but in fact, this has been going on for at least 40 years, which is as long as I've been involved with the Native Women's Association, that ending violence against our women has been a primary concern. We had the study back in the 1980s from the Ontario Native Women's Association, which was really pivotal in bringing attention to the issue within the province of Ontario, where they documented that for the Indigenous women in that study, many, as many as 75% of women in some communities had been victims of violence, and in some of the more remote communities, it was as high as 95%. So clearly, there was a crisis going on and, and a lack of safety for our women and girls. And as we move forward, trying to have those conversations with the people who had the power to make a difference, to make changes in the system, to increase our safety, we were initially met with a lot of resistance. A lot of people both within the First Nations and non-Indigenous communities outside of our First Nations either denying that it was a problem or you know, saying that this is a First Nations issue and it's an issue for First Nations policing. So it was not until we worked over the years to have to gather the evidence because we knew this was a problem, but mainstream Canadian society just couldn't see it. And, you know, very often we were criticized that this was anecdotal, there was no hard evidence. And through the Native Women's Association of Canada and our Sisters in Spirit Initiative, where they documented the names and the stories of, they started with 500 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and, you know, up to 600, then 680. And again, we were criticized. People were claiming that we were just inflating the statistics and over-exaggerating to incite hysteria and and that we didn't have the hard data. And that's when the RCMP stepped up and said they had access to the hard data and they were going to do the work. And they came back, in fact, with numbers even greater than what we had. So... And and just to jump in there, their their numbers yeah. were about one thousand one hundred eighty-one. I think I was looking at that stat today. That was yeah. their two thousand and thirteen estimate. And more violence has obviously occurred since then. So those those numbers will have grown. And I was listening to Pamela um, Palmatter, who's uh, the chair of Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, this morning on the CBC, and she she put the num the figure of four thousand out there, which. I, I, I didn't find a, a, a where that stat came from exactly. But, I mean, one of the things you're saying basically is that maybe we don't even know the full scope of, of violence against, and, and in particular in the, in the sense of missing and murdered Indigenous women. We don't really know how big this problem really is. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's exactly it, because even within the RCMP data, they admitted that now, there are many cases where the identity or you know, whether they want to call it the ethnic identity or the indigenous identity of the victim was unknown. So there could be potentially more within that group. But also great numbers who were written off as suicide or natural causes when the family looks at it and says, you know, a young woman who was found naked on the bush on the side of the road and they determine that it natural causes because she died of exposure, well, yes, but who looks into why she was in that circumstance? You know, that's, that's not natural that somebody would be in that situation. What, what caused Obviously, the exposure that caused her death? 
um, yeah, in that case. I mean, it, it's not normal that somebody is out naked on the side of the highway in the winter. You know, there, there's clearly something more happened before she froze to death. And there's many of those kind of cases where the families have seen that, you know, or feel that cases were closed prematurely. Police, you know, sort of with an attitude of it's just another Indian who overdosed or who committed suicide without really investigating. And, and we've heard from families and from people who were at the scene of the crime when these things happened, you know, heard the woman screaming, heard these kinds of things, and then it was just written off as a suicide. And I think that's why there's so many families who want justice, who wanted to see cases reopened where they feel that there wasn't a proper investigation, that prejudice got in the way and resulted in just assumptions and premature closure of investigations. But... But the family, yeah, is, doesn't trust um, the police force, essentially. Um, exactly. And I felt extreme racism when they go to report their family member missing, you know, police officers. And we've read this again and again saying, well, they're probably just out drinking, you know, maybe come back next week or... And because of prejudice, believing the worst of our women and blaming the victims because of prejudice, feeling right. like it's just another Indian chick. I want to get to that issue of trust um, in in law enforcement, but I, I, I want to just get your broad, before we get into some of these um, more specific issues um, and problems and whether or not the inquiry can deal with them, your your general reaction to it and, and its ability basically to to definitively get a sense of how deep this issue goes. What, what is your sense of the potential, really, of this inquiry to be that kind of definitive document um, to explain and, and reveal the, the full extent of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the country? Well, I think right now we are at the, the precipice. We are at the outset of this inquiry the government has handed over that power and authority to the commissioners, and now that burden, the heavy lifting, really has to come from those commissioners, and that's what's going to determine whether this is an inquiry that becomes just another set of recommendations that everybody already knew that sits on a shelf gathering dust, or whether it's truly insightful and exposes the systemic ways in which Indigenous women and girls are put in unsafe situations, the systemic ways in which they are discriminated against, the ways the system has failed our people, and specifically in the areas of policing and child welfare. The minister has said at the announcement that even though the terms of reference don't explicitly articulate that policing and child welfare will be looked into, it is within the power of the commissioners to look into those areas, and we believe if they can, then they should be looked into because that's absolutely necessary in order to identify the changes that we need to see. So it's really going to fall on the shoulders of the commissioners how they structure this, how deeply they delve into things, and, and what they're looking at is going to determine whether it, it, it succeeds. I, I had the sense myself that, and, and it's, been, it's been my belief that this inquiry does provide an opportunity to offer insight. I wrote a column based on that, but... That is a position that that some disagree with, and and I was reading the editorial in the uh, National Post for Thursday, which uh, suggested that many other um, inquiries, including the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission, have already established what the problems are. I.e., there's actually this might be an opportunity for healing and 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 sort of 
learning but not not actual information that we could use to make our society better to make policing better to make l- the lives of women better what do you say to critics who who don't think there's more important sort of salient detail to be learned well i think for people who live in a world where the system works for them they cannot conceive of that same system discriminating against other people or actually putting other people in harm's way, having having that system fail other people because it has worked for them. So they wouldn't see a value in this kind of investigation. But for those of us who have lived lives where the system has, in fact, worked against our people for generations upon generations, you know, right starting back with the earliest days where this mistrust comes from when the police were the ones who were coming into our communities and apprehending the children and forcing them into residential schools and you know, putting our people in jail for traditional ceremonies and dances. And so there has been an issue with policing and with systemic structures for generations now. But for those who the system works for them, it's very hard to conceive of that and to even understand what that looks like in the practical day-to-day reality of our lived experience. And I think the examples in Valdor that came out recently provide a good example of hopefully the kind of thing that will be documented, that will be exposed, so that we can take the necessary steps to change the system because nobody is going to make the changes if they don't believe this is happening. And the situation in Valdor was the police have been accused of harassing and abusing Indigenous women Sad to say, that's not a unique story, and that is not constrained to only Quebec. We have heard similar stories coast to coast to coast across Canada where Indigenous women have had more experiences with police forces, and that's the kind of thing that needs to be addressed. And we do think that once that is documented in this kind of independent, um, credible format, they will no longer be able to dismiss it as that's just anecdotal, that's just urban myth, that doesn't really happen, or those women must have done something to bring that on themselves and blaming the victim in that way. You know, much like the RCMP report, which moved us from an era of everybody saying that this wasn't really happening to an era where they couldn't deny it because these are the statistics from the national police force and even the government. How can you look at your own police force and say you don't believe those statistics? And we're hoping that this is going to have a similar effect of exposing the ugly truth of the way the system is treating our people. And then we will finally be at a point where having to acknowledge that means that we're going to have a starting point to start changing that system. The editorial in the National Post does acknowledge this idea of all these root causes of violence, certainly back to colonization like like I think yep. many of the criticisms of this inquiry that I've seen aren't about whether or not um, this is an actual important and devastating issue they're about whether or not the inquiry will be an effective tool for for getting information that we don't already have and you're saying yes it could be depending on how the commissioners um, sort of operate and and because they are the ones that now design what this will look like what the government has given them as a framework they will they will execute that and and how they execute that will determine whether or not this is actually important data for us is that what you're saying well, exactly. How they structure it, what they look into, the kinds of reports, uh, 
and documents they pull and what they draw into is going to determine whether this is just another reporting of tragedy and sad stories or whether this is actually hard data exposing the abuse and discrimination against Indigenous women and girls, that's going to be on the shoulders of those commissioners, how they structure their inquiry, what they make of it. And that's why we're saying that, I know even some people were, as you say, critical that the terms of reference were not as explicit as they could be. It really boils down to what the commissioners make up. They have a very broad scope and an incredible uh, ability and authority to to pull in the information they need. So it's really going to fall on those commissioners, how they structure. And that's where we're committed to working on that over the next few months with the vision of making sure they're looking into the root causes, but in a way that identifies the reality, the practical day-to-day ways in which the root causes determine our lives, determine our chances, determine our options. It's one thing to say that this is about racism and sexism. Those are nice sociological theories that sound great in textbooks. But what that looks like on a day-to-day basis in terms of an Indigenous woman trying to get a fair trial from a judge or an Indigenous woman being mistreated by police forces or child welfare, that's the stuff that has to be documented, the practical day-to-day ways in which the racism and sexism are enacted, because that's that's where we need to make the changes. That's where it happens. So what about then the scope of this? Um, let's just go over um, the terms that the, the commissioners have been, been given. They're, the, the basics um, are to look into the root causes of and systemic causes of violence against Indigenous women um, and identify and examine pr- um, practices that have been effective in reducing violence and increasing safety. So it's, it's a why is this happening and what should we do kind of broad, broad directive. Right. What? How would you describe? I guess the the what's face what the commissioners are facing. Well, that's exactly it. It is extremely wide open right now, and it's going to be up to the commissioners to determine how they are going to make that into something meaningful and implementable. And that's also going to be part of whether this inquiry is a success. Is when we get to the other end and we have recommendations, are they going to be actionable recommendations? Are they going to be recommendations? that the government has a budget to implement because that's what's going to determine if we're going to impact the lives of Indigenous women and girls. Just more recommendations on a shelf are going to do nothing if there isn't a commitment for the budget to start implementing actionable changes. And what is, what, what about the criticisms of, as, as you were mentioning, so so one of the things, actually, you know what, let's start with this. Let's start um, with a press release that your organization put out in the wake of this. You, you name a number of things that are of concern to the Native Women's Association of Canada in terms of what might be missing. Let's go through those. What, what, is, what, what concerns you right now about um, what might be missing in this outline that the commissioners have been given? So absolutely, there are some areas that were not explicit. And, and not as well articulated as they could have been. Specifically, you know, we called for trauma-based, culturally appropriate support and counseling for the families to ensure that this process doesn't inflict more harm on families that have already suffered enough. And the terms of reference indicate that that support will be provided for the duration of their appearance in front of the commissioners. And we have had 
grave concerns that that is not sufficient. You can't put such a limited time frame on mental health support and healing because going through this process of a commission, they have to have appropriate preparation going in, supports while they're appearing before the commissioners, and then follow-up support so that we're not reopening wounds and then just sending people home to try to cope with those on their own in communities that we already know are not able to support the mental health needs that are there right now. But the minister made a statement yesterday in her words indicating that there would be a longer range of supports being provided. And so we are going to hold the government accountable to that and we are now going to be monitoring how the commissioners set up the process to ensure that those families have that longer range, that longer continuous support. And they made that commitment in front of the whole country, so not just to Indigenous women and, and the families here. So, you know, they're going to have to honor that commitment. But we also had concerns about the fact that the role of the provinces and territories wasn't very well articulated in the terms of reference. And because many of the areas of concern, such as policing and child welfare, fall within provincial jurisdiction, we're concerned that not going to be it wasn't well articulated enough, that it wasn't made clear again. So this is part of the process as we understand those orders in council with the provinces and territories are not all completed. And, you know, so we're waiting and we're hopeful that those are going to be done in a way that address that concern. And, and again, we are holding the minister to her commitment publicly where she indicated yesterday that policing and child welfare are areas that can be looked into through this inquiry. And again, that's a commitment that was made in front of the entire nation. So the commissioners are going to have to ensure that that happens. And we're going to be monitoring to make sure that happens. And just to elaborate on that a little bit, what you're talking about in terms of the roles of provinces and territories is not just, um, you know, that they cooperate necessarily, but that the, the commission be given an opportunity to investigate agencies within provinces and territories that could negatively impact the safety of Indigenous women and girls, right? And one of the things that you've mentioned here in the release that is something I haven't seen, and I, I do try and pay attention to um, all the stories that come up about you know, violence against women and sexual violence. In here, you note how girls have described that they were sex trafficked from group homes and motels that are part of the child welfare system. Um, so those are stories that already we know exist. So so that that's the kind of um, finger pointing, to, to put it simply, that you hope the commission has the capacity to do and investigate and, and reveal. Um, am I right there? Absolutely. That is with the number of survivors of violence, survivors of of the sex trade who have come forward and indicated that the first time they were abused was in foster homes, that the first time they were, that's where they were recruited into the sex trade from a foster home or group home or, you know, the youth shelter, because those are the places where people looking to exploit young women are looking, they're targeting our girls in those situations. And that's where the state is supposed to be protecting our young women in those facilities, in those homes. And clearly, there's there's a problem. If this many of our women indicate that that was the first point of contact for recruiters, that needs to be exposed so that we can address that. And that is going to require, again, some very hard self-reflection on the part of provinces and systems that have been allowing this to happen. And I don't doubt that that's going to be a difficult 
conversation, especially with the you know, liability mentality of society now and government, certainly, but that does need to be exposed rather than looking at how do we minimize liability and worry about people suing us. We, we need to keep focusing on the greater good, which is that this is about exposing what has happened so we can stop it from happening to future generations of our women and girls. We're going to stop there and take a quick break and be right back on Nthwave. Welcome back to Nthwave. Don, I really wanted to get to this idea of um, skepticism over um, the government. I think um, what what you were just bringing up about liability concerns really speaks to that. One of the the big opportunities that I see that mainstream Canada has through this inquiry, and it was there for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well, is is trying to increase um, and give our Indigenous people's good reason to increase their trust in in government and in and in mainstream society um because governments really are are often motivated by the demands that the public give them if we really truly um you know already had everything we needed to increase the safety for indigenous women and girls it's my belief we'd already be doing that and one of the key pieces that i think we're is missing on the one hand is public sentiment which could definitely be changed by this inquiry the way it was changed through the truth and reconciliation commission but also uh you know we need our indigenous peoples to have faith in in the government so one of the things that happened through the trc as i'm sure you all know and people will know is that that those commit that commission had to take the government to court to review documents about residential schools and I'm wondering what you think about this big this big issue that's kind of at the heart for me of of this inquiry this issue of trust and and you know the skepticism that it might be out there that more court battles might be needed before this inquiry can really do its work well and I think that you've pointed out exactly this is an issue of trust and if we are going to do this that's what I'm saying like we can't shy away from the hard conversations and exposing the ugly truth because we're worried about liability, because we're worried about future losses. And in terms of trying to prevent that, actually concealing or, or not looking into the, those all-important areas because of worries about liability. If this inquiry is going to really make a difference, those are exactly the areas that need to be exposed so that we can change them. Because we have seen again and again, when wrongdoing has happened, when there has been misconduct, there's more concerns about avoiding lawsuits and and protecting the system than about actually getting to the truth so that we can own what happened and have a genuine chance at changing it. Because you can't have, that's the whole truth and reconciliation. You can't get to a point of reconciliation. Apologies are meaningless if we're not admitting to the truth of the situation. And that's what's so important here is getting to that, that truth. And that's not only in terms of government structures, that's also going to be happening within our indigenous communities as well. You know, there's, we have to be willing to look into all of those dark corners so that we can expose all of the ways in which our women and girls are being put at risk so that we can make the important changes. What do you mean by dark corners? 
I mean, I think there's going to have to be some really difficult conversations about sexual abuse. I mean, we know that many of our women, there's a direct connection between being in the child welfare system and ending up being exploited in, and sexually exploited in the streets and being involved in human trafficking and a direct connection to sexual abuse. It's all interrelated. And those are a lot of conversations that as a society, you shy away from. Those are the things that live in the dark corners that nobody wants to talk about because it affects our sense of safety. Nobody wants to admit those kind of things ever happen. And it's going to be a hard conversation to have. People are going to have to, we have to admit it's happening if we're going to be able to change it. It seems to me then that one of the things that, like the commissioners obviously have a huge role to play, a central role, the role perhaps. But but when you talk about um, wanting and demanding the truth, that is something that all of Canadians can can get on board with like in my mind one of the things that's in this inquiry as we were talking about the role of police and and criminal um, actions and misconduct that might be associated with the way that the system has dealt with indigenous women and girls and treated them and their families Um, so that's something that the commission can look at not investigate but can point out and forward on to um, other agencies that are responsible for those those issues and it seems to me that kind of what you're pointing at is how pressure from the public will be crucial to whether or not that is followed through it's one thing for the commission to do its job to its best ability and and detail and pull out these cases um, but as many critics have noted this this commission cannot reopen cases it, it is not an investigative body in a, in a policing sense and so those types of issues and, and that type of action, and any kind of police misconduct or criminality will be the responsibility really of the public to, to demand be followed through on. Is that, I mean, that's what it seems to me here. Well, exactly. And this is where we're hoping. And again, we're going to be monitoring and doing it to the best of our ability, keeping that public scrutiny on the system because, you know, clearly the system has failed in many cases for these families who didn't receive justice to, you know, complaints about police misconduct weren't followed up on or properly investigated. But we're hoping that now with the power of commissioners who will be recommending those cases back, because simply sending families back to another circle through a system that has failed us is not going to obtain any kind of different outcome. However, if we have the commissioners monitoring that, if we have as we said, you know, now the larger public and, and larger scrutiny, then we're hoping that the power of those commissioners pushing that investigation is going to get us a different outcome and they are going to keep the pressure on to ensure that there's proper investigation. And I would imagine that one of the recommendations coming forward is that they will be able to see and prove, as you said, and recommend that these cases be reinvestigated and it's at that point that we'll be able to see that what these families were saying is true that there were cases great many cases where there was misconduct where there was a failure to have the same response simply because it was an indigenous woman and we're really hoping that that's that this 
the structure of a commission, of having the commissioners and the public eye on this process is going to force the system to actually do their jobs because the system hasn't been operating the way it should be. The system is broken and it needs to be fixed. And here's our opportunity to show that. This is sort of tangential, but I think um, it'd be interesting to people in it. And um, it speaks to kind of the bigger, I guess, uh, landscape in which this is taking place. The Native Women's Association of Canada um, has uh, put forward a, a press release about the government's commitment to removing sexism from the Indian Act. And and that's not something that I've seen talked about much. It's not something that I know much about myself. And I'm wondering um, if you can just briefly maybe tell us a bit about what that issue is and how that might be connected to the missing and murdered Indigenous women's inquiry. Absolutely. I mean, this is something I know lots about and have experienced because this has defined my entire life that when my mother married my father, because of the Indian Act, she was she lost her status. She was she couldn't be a member of the community anymore. She lost her home. She lost her land. She lost all of those important supports of being part of that community and and all of her rights as an Indigenous person. And she actually went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada where they lost by one vote because it was a clear case of gender discrimination because the same thing didn't happen to Indigenous men. When they married a non-Native or a non-status person, that non-Native woman actually became status. She had the right to be a member of our community and their children were full status and had the right to be a member of that community, whereas women like my mother were kicked out of the community along with their children. And even if they subsequently divorced or that spouse died, you know, once once you were kicked out, you were kicked out. And so, you know, putting women in those situations where then they were very vulnerable, having lost the, the supportive networks of, of family and community and kinship and all of those things that help to moderate behaviors in any community and society. You know, being 100% at the mercy of your spouse is is not a situation anybody should ever be in. And and having lost those supportive connections is, you know, increasing that vulnerability. And, and, and that does even, that still exist, this, this double well, standard? Well, the interesting part is the initial case was taken, and because of pressure from the United Nations, you know, the Canadian government was shamed into reinstating those women and their children back in 1985. The original court case started in the early 1970s those women were reinstated, but they were never actually restored to their original status. They were returned as reinstatees, which is a second-class status. Their children had a second-class status. And that's why Sharon MacGyver came forward with her claim on behalf of her grandchildren to say that you know, if her brother, who married a non-Native, his grandchildren had status and were members of the communities, and Sharon MacGyver's grandchildren didn't because that change, which was Bill C-31 in 1985, only reinstated the women and their children, and then they cut off. And so any of the grandchildren, such as my three children, would not have been eligible to be reinstated. Now, Sharon MacGyver's case forced the government to extend it to another generation, but they still are working through all of those areas where, you know, there's still discrimination, where because of that original section... You know, my mother is still a reinstatee. She did not get her original status back. She's being discriminated against because of the Indian Act because she's a woman. I have a different 
and, and it's really hard actually to figure out all the varying categories of Indian status because of this process of putting women back but not actually reinstating them. You know, some of the bands, you can be on the band list and have status but not actually be accepted back to your community. You know, there's many women who are still struggling to be recognized and accepted back to their own communities. And, you know, this creates a lot of vulnerability for women and their children. And, and that's not even getting into the areas of the discrimination based on unstated or unknown paternity. Mm. And, you know, there was sections in the Indian Act that basically said if it was a male child that was illegitimate, you would be status. If it was a female child that was illegitimate, they weren't. Like all of these clearly gender-based, because of patriarchy, you know, preferential treatment of males. And, you know, even back in the day under the Indian Act, only men, males over the age of 21, could be chief and counsel. So right. even though that provision was removed, if you look at the chief and counsels, if you look at the Assembly of First Nations, you see the ongoing impact of that, where our women who traditionally had roles in our communities, had power and authority and decision-making, that was obliterated by the Indian Act. And for them to say, well, now you still have the chance women can run for chief and counsel. You know, there isn't that same equity we had because it was obliterated for generations by forcing women out of any decision-making opportunities. And that's, in fact, why we created groups like the Native Women's Association to try to give voice to those traditional women's circles. Right. And and I think I read recently that there's a record number of Indigenous women chiefs at uh, at the recent national, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, the title of the conference, but... I read a story about that, essentially, which which is the flip side of that, which is the women doing their best to to regain equity um, within their communities that would have been affected by the Indian Act. Um, we're just about out of time, um, Don. So I just wanted to ask one last question, which um, sort of more of a personal one. You said at the very beginning that it's you've spent 40 years with the Native Women's, Women's Association of Canada, that for at least that long, if not longer, this issue of violence against women and, and women's rights really uh, within Indigenous communities and within Canada um, has been a problem, has been something you've been fighting for. And I'm, I'm wondering about your personal sense and your emotional kind of um, response right now, like how big you think this inquiry could be, how you're feeling just as a woman who's been fighting for this for so long. How, how, how does that feel to you right now? Well, this is the thing right now, you know, we're what we call cautiously optimistic. You know, we're trying to keep our vision on the larger picture here. We're looking at how far we have come, even from our experience within the what we call the dark years under the Harper era, where we actually had significant regression in terms of Indigenous women's rights and voice. And, you know, now here we are. If we look at where we were even a year ago at this time, compared to now, we have our inquiry, and it may not be perfect, but we can't focus on the problems that we need to say, and, and we need to look at and remember that we can still work to make it the best inquiry that we can. And remember that in terms of the big picture here, we have made significant strides forward, even having the initiation of this inquiry. And now it really is our job to work with those commissioners to make sure that this inquiry in the details, in the planning, in the structure can be what we need so that we will finally have 
the changes we need in society, where we're not having little piecemeal band-aid amendments that lead to yet another generation of our daughters and granddaughters being discriminated against and and having less opportunities because of the Indian Act, because of the discrimination, because of the intersection of racism and sexism that leads to, quite honestly, are are women being in, in poverty? Are women being in communities that have third world conditions? Now, we're really hoping that this is going to start exposing the many ways in which the system has put our people in that situation. And then it would be my hope that society can see the need to rectify that situation rather than continuing to another few generations of blaming the victims of oppression for their own situation. Is it a good day then? You know what? It is a good day. And that's why it's, um, you know, I have three daughters and I'm looking at my daughters and I remember that we always need to keep that in mind, that we are moving forward, that sometimes the struggle takes time. And it took, you know, it took my mom 40 years since her court case in the 1970s to get where we are today. And I was that baby in her arms on Parliament Hill when they were marching for their right to, to be returned to their communities. And so to see this point where we have this recognition is this is a very powerful day and it has the potential to have life-changing impact for future generations of Indigenous women and girls if we keep sticking to it and working together holding the commissioners and the government accountable for their promises to make sure that this inquiry actually gets to the truth so that we can make a change for those future generations so that they're not still having this argument 40 years from now. I truly hope that that Canadians themselves consider that their job as well and not just yours. Don Laval, Harvard, president of the Native Women's Association of Canada, thank you so much for your generous time today and talking with us about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry and best of luck with your future work on this. Thank you very much. Enthwave is made by Metro News Canada and available on iTunes and Stitcher. If you like us and you think others should listen too, please give us a review. It was produced by me, Rosie, recording, editing, and post-production by Out Loud Post-Production. Our theme song was written by Jonah Falco. Matt LaForge leads us. You can reach us via Twitter. Our handle is at Enthwave Podcast, and all our episodes are online at metronews.ca slash features slash nth wave. That's our show this week. Talk to you next time. This has been a Metro podcast.